Well, church, if you're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the Gospel of John. Um, it's hard to believe that we've been in the Gospel of John for a year now. This is the, the final chapter of, of this Gospel account. Thank God for it. Uh, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open, though, as we read God's Word together this morning and to follow along as we do. Let's pray once more as we ask God for his help as we consider his word. Where the psalmist says that unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, go to bed late, for the Lord gives sleep to his beloved. We recognize that um, Jesus himself is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we cry out to you now to open the eyes of our hearts to see, to believe, to trust, and to rest in you. We pray, Father, that you would set us apart, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. And so, Lord, we pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, just as a reminder, maybe you're a guest here this morning. If you do not own a Bible that you can read, there are black Bibles in the chairs that are, you're sitting in. And that's not just for you to read during the, the Sunday morning service. If you don't own a Bible that you can read, take that as our church's Christmas present to you. No one will tackle you if they see you taking a Bible from this church. That's what they're there for. We want you to read God's word, to have it in your hands, read it, think about it, ask the questions. We'd love to talk more with you about that uh, as well. Well, last week we read John 20, and in John 20, one of the things that we saw was Thomas wrestling with his doubts, his unbelief, and he had this wonderful privilege of being able to uh, see with his own eyes and to touch the wounds of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Thomas was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, but so was John, so were all the apostles. If you skip down to our, uh, in our, in our own chapter this morning, chapter 21, verse 24, if you skip down to 24, uh, John writes of himself, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John's the author of this gospel account. He is bearing witness. He's an eyewitness uh, account for us to have today. And we should be thankful that Thomas and John and the other disciples had their eyewitness accounts. Because because of that, God used these apostles to write and preserve a true and trustworthy account of Jesus and what he's done and his word for us today to read today. So, what is the purpose of such a gospel account like the Gospel of John? We've said this over and over, but John told us in 20 verse 31, these are written. Why? What's the purpose? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. It's a simple reminder, friends, that, that our faith, the faith of a Christian, is not based upon feelings or news headlines or our ability Our faith is based upon the promises of God's word. A Christian is somebody who banks their entire life 
on the trustworthy truths of God's word. It's a big thing to say. So I want us to pause for a minute and consider this. What's, let's imagine that you were diagnosed with a life-threatening medical issue this week, only to find out that there is a life-saving surgery that's available to you. That's good news, right? And based on that good news, you schedule this life-saving surgery. Looking, you know, you're thankful for this life-saving surgery. But later that week, before the operation, you're watching the news that night, and on the television, you see the doctor being, that's scheduled for your surgery being interviewed by the host. And in this TV interview, the doctor says that, you know what, he no longer believes in the surgery that you're scheduled for. And in fact, he thinks that it may do more harm than good. Knowing that, would you put your life in the hands of the surgeon who's scheduled to do your surgery the next day? Probably not. Friends, Christian faith is based on God's word. And so if we are reluctant to trust an uncertain surgeon, it's also understandable that some will hesitate to bank their eternal destiny on the account of a group of apostles who days before abandoned and denied Jesus. So the question we have to wrestle with is, How can we trust the gospel record that God inspired these apostles to to write for us? How can we trust this gospel record if the apostles who wrote it blew it, doubted, denied Jesus? If we are to trust John's eyewitness account, we need to answer that. Let's take that seriously. That's a question that we need to answer. And thankfully, John concludes his gospel record by showing us why we can trust his and the other apostles' written accounts, even though they blew it. We'll break the chapter into two parts. If you're a note taker, there are two scenes, two points. Scene number one, Jesus feeds the apostles. That's verses one through 14. Jesus feeds the apostles. Scene number two, Jesus reinstates the apostles to feed his sheep. Jesus reinstates his apostles to feed his sheep. And we're going to see that in verses 15 through 25. So let's begin in John 21, verse 1, as we watch Jesus feed the apostles. Look at verse 1 with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, in verse 1, we're told where they're at. They're at the Sea of Tiberias. If you compare this with John 6, verse 1, you know that the Sea of Tiberias is, is synonymous with, it's another name for, the Sea of Galilee. So why are Jesus' disciples in Galilee? Well, 
Because in Matthew 28, verse 10, Jesus told the disciples after his, you know, in, in his resurrection, in his post-resurrection, in his glorified body, he told them to go ahead of him to Galilee and wait for him until he showed up again. So the fact that the disciples are in Galilee shows us that they obeyed what Jesus told them to do. So now that they're in Galilee, they obeyed Jesus. But what are they supposed to do next? It wasn't clear. And so we don't know how long that these disciples waited, but they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And Peter, being his typical go-getter self, becomes restless, and he makes the decision, all right, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going fishing. Six other disciples go with him. This is their occupation before they became disciples. So they join Peter, and they go fishing. And, they, and we're told they go at night, and they fish all night long. Cast the net, pull it in. Cast the net, pull it in. Cast the net, pull it in. And guess what? Nothing. So they change sides of the boat. They, change, they try new techniques. These are skillful fishermen. This is their occupation. They're, they're experts at this. So they try a new technique. Cast the net, pull it in. Cast the net, pull it in. All night long, we're told, until the morning. And verse 3 ends saying, but they caught nothing. I can relate with that. But these are skillful fishermen. They caught nothing. Friends, just pause after verse 3 and ask yourself, how do you feel when you work your tail off, you give your, yourself to something all in, only to come up empty-handed. <laughs> the project at work that you've been working on for months is cut. The school that you worked so hard to apply to get into denies you. You teach your kids, you disciple your kids, you, 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 you catechize your kids, but you just don't see any change in your kids. You counsel a friend Give them godly advice from God's word, and yet you watch them again and again and again ignore your advice. Failure can be discouraging. It can be painful. You ever come up empty-handed? C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, though, he said, pain insists upon being attended to. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. These seven fishermen, disciples of Jesus, failed at something that they were good at. Came up empty-handed fishing. But Jesus had good purposes for their failure. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, 
it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. (laughs) The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. One thing to note as you look at this, these first 14 verses are the peculiar details. If you were reading ahead this week and you read the first 14 verses, you might ask yourself, why does, why does John include some of these details? Why does he tell us the boat was 100 yards off? Why does he tell us that there was 153 fish? Why does, why does he tell us what Peter was wearing? How does that move the plot forward? It doesn't. So why does John include those details? I think the reason for these details is because that's what John saw. John is giving us an eyewitness account. He's not fabricating a story. He's just saying, this is what happened. This is what I saw. He's an eyewitness. So what does John, then, as he records these details for us, what does John want us to see? What does he show us? Well, first, we see that Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign. At first, we're told, when, when Jesus calls out the disciples, the disciples in the boat did not know that it was Jesus. Now, we could say that that was because it was 100 yards away. Maybe they couldn't recognize that it was Jesus because it was dark. But whatever the case, they didn't realize that it was Jesus on their own. In fact, verse 1 tells us that it was Jesus who revealed himself to the disciples. Interesting, when Jesus tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat, Even then, they didn't know it was Jesus giving them the instruction. So you can imagine these guys, they were tired. They had been up all night. They had not caught a single fish. They're hungry. They're tired. They're frustrated. And this guy on the shore is saying, hey, just throw it on the right side of the boat. I imagine a few of the disciples were rolling their eyes and muttering under their breath, who does this guy think that he is? We're expert fishermen. And yet, for whatever reason, they do it. Maybe because they're desperate. They just cast the net on the right side. And verse 6 says that they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Friends, that's not good luck. Jesus wasn't just rubbing his lucky rabbit foot and saying, maybe on the right side I'll be, have a little more luck. No, 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 no. John includes that detail to show us that Jesus knew beforehand they didn't have a fish. And Jesus commanded he summoned the fish in the sea this is where I want you to go fish go into their net I want 153 of you to go in that net and guess what the fish obeyed Jesus is in control and what's interesting is these disciples if you if you compare this with a similar miracle in Luke 5 
before they were disciples, Jesus gives them a fishing tip and they, they caught so many fish their boats were about to sink. I imagine it's when they're hauling in these fish that, that, they, that they remember, oh yeah, that, this has happened before. It's Jesus. And Jesus reveals himself to them. Their eyes were opened. It is the Lord. So first thing we need to see is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign. Even in their failures, even in their frustrations, even in their empty-handedness, Jesus is in control. Second, we see that Jesus is the provider. Jesus provides for his followers. They don't make breakfast for Jesus. Jesus makes breakfast for them. So when Peter learns that it's the Lord, again, his typical fashion, he just throws himself into the sea. It's kind of like that scene in Forrest Gump. He just kind of lets the boat go and jumps in the water. He's, he cannot wait to see the Savior. And so he swims 100 yards to Jesus and leaves the other disciples to bring the, the fish in in the boat. And when they all arrive on the shore together, what do we see? We're told Jesus has a charcoal fire going in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And then he invites the disciples to have breakfast with him. Notice in verse 13, it says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. They didn't bake the bread. They didn't didn't make the breakfast. Jesus gave it to them. He provided it for them. Now remember, the disciples had gone to Galilee, to the Sea of Tiberias, because Jesus had commanded them to in Matthew 28. They, they went, they went as far as God's light had shown them to go. And then they waited, and they waited, and they waited. What are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do next? Do you like waiting? No. We're impatient. We hate waiting. But a lot of the Christian life, friends, is waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for all things to be made new. A lot of the Christian life is waiting. And waiting is difficult, especially when something or someone important is on the line. When we're waiting and something important is on the line, we get anxious, right? We get fearful. What's going to happen? But listen, With Jesus in control, with Jesus being our provider, as difficult as waiting is, we don't need to know what the next five years holds for us. You don't need to know what the next five days holds for you. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? You got about enough capacity for one day. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Why? For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Jesus says. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus tells us take a day at a time. Not five years, not 10 years. You don't need your 10-year plan from Jesus. You just need to trust him for today. You need his daily bread. So what are we to do when we're waiting? Are you waiting for anything? Not sure what to do next? What do we do when we're waiting on God? You just do the next thing. (laughs) What's the next thing in front of you? You do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary in Ecuador whose husband was killed by the Ecuadorians that he was sharing the gospel with. So for a while she went off scene, she goes back to America and then she decides to go back to Ecuador to the same village that had killed her husband. It's an amazing story. And when she went back to the jungle after her husband's death to continue the work, she had a lot of responsibilities to juggle, a lot of things to handle. She was now a widow 
with a young child to raise, she had, and, and she's left with all these questions. How am I supposed to get the airstrip ready for the planes to land? How am I going to finish the hydroelectric system that Jim, her husband, had started building before he died? How is she supposed to teach the literacy class to these natives? How is she going to help the, these women deliver babies in the village? How is she going to help run the boys' school in the village? How is she going to translate the Gospel of Luke so that they have something to read in their own native language? How is she going to care for her own baby as a widow now? And on and on the list went. You can imagine if you're Elizabeth Elliot when you go back to Ecuador, it's overwhelming. And she, and she talks about this in many of her testimonies. She talks about how it was overwhelming. And she was tempted to panic. She was tempted to collapse in fear or despair, to feel sorry for herself. But Elizabeth Elliot had learned the wisdom of not trying to tackle everything at once, not the next five years. When there's a big thing like that, she learned the wisdom of just doing the next thing. She learned it from the wisdom of a a poem that her mom had given her. And this poem says this. It says, This poem about doing the next thing says, do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care, do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before you with earnest command, stayed on omnipotence, safe beneath his wings, leave all the results and do the next thing. Friends, that's good advice from Elizabeth Elliot. Because most of our life is not some mountaintop experience that you want to report on your Facebook account. Most of our life is mundane. It's the daily routine. It's not minute by minute of big life-changing decisions that you want to make the world known about. No, it's just, it's the next thing. It's brushing your teeth. It's getting out of bed. It's reading your Bible. It's going to work. It's finishing the laundry. It's eating dinner with your family. It's doing the next thing. The disciples were waiting on Jesus. They had gone as far as the light of God had told them to go. They had obeyed, and they didn't know what to do next. They were waiting. But because Jesus is in control, because Jesus is our provider, we can, like the disciples, just do the next thing and trust that God will get us where he wants us to go. That's what we see in verses 1 through 14. Because Jesus is in control, because Jesus is our provider, he took a seemingly random fishing trip. (laughs) And he transforms it into the very means of revealing himself to his disciples. Praise God for that. Don't get paralyzed about what you're supposed to do tomorrow. Just do the next thing. Keep trusting the Lord. On a side note, let me just kind of encourage you. when, when you When you're waiting on God and you're trying to know what God's will is for your life, let me, let me encourage you to keep four things in mind. This is four pastoral encouragements for you as you wait on God and trying to determine his will. Prayer, Bible, counsel, decision. Those four things, prayer, Bible, counsel, and decision. Number one, pray. When you're not sure what to do next, pray. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. Pray for wisdom. Number two, read the Bible. The Bible is called a light for our path. Is there anything in scripture that God is clearly commanding you to do that will help you know what the wise course of action is? And when you read your Bible, obey the clear commands of God. 
And then when you're not sure what to do next, keep reading, keep praying. Number three, get godly counsel. A lot of you know to read, a lot of you know to pray, but sometimes we skip over the third one, getting godly counsel. Maybe it's talking to an elder in the church. Maybe it's talking to another saint in the church who, 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 who you trust. Proverbs 12, verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Don't be a fool, be a wise person and get advice. Number four, decision. Do the next thing. My dad always told me, he said, listen, if you've read the Bible, if you've prayed, if you've got godly counsel, just remember that God won't steer a parked car. When you've done those first three things, then make a decision. After you've prayed, sought God in his word, received godly counsel, make a decision, do the next thing. And do so confidently. Why? Because Jesus, your good shepherd, is in control. Because Jesus, your good shepherd, will provide for you what you need when you need it. Isn't that what the psalmist says in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you don't have something right now that you're asking for, you can trust that God is saying to you as a Christian, you don't need it. Because the promise is true, I shall not want. And if you need something, you can be absolutely confident that the good shepherd, your provider, will provide what you need because he will not lie. He is your shepherd and you shall not want. Praise God that he's in control. Praise God that he's our provider. But why does John include this account of the miraculous catch? What purpose does it play in the conclusion, the epilogue of his gospel? What's the point? Well, I actually think the second half of chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, actually act, act as an interpretive key to understanding how we should interpret the parable, or, or the, the, not the parable, but the miracle of the fish. So we'll, we'll, we'll turn our attention now to the second scene. Scene number two, Jesus reinstates the apostles to feed his sheep. So he feeds his shepherds, he feeds the apostles, and then second of all, he reinstates the apostles to feed his sheep. Look at verse 15. When, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Don't forget when Jesus was on trial in John 18, what was Peter doing? We're told in John 18 that Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire. And three times he denied Jesus. I'm not his disciple. I'm not. I don't know that man. He even cursed in that last denial. 
And by his third denial, we're told the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it would happen. And when Peter heard the rooster crow, he was devastated. He was ruined by his utter failure, that he cowered and denied his Savior. One of the things I love about verses 15 through 17 is that Jesus didn't bench Peter. He wasn't done with him. After feeding the disciples in verses 1 through 14, Jesus then comes to Peter, who's now on the sidelines thinking that he's benched, thinking that he's done because of his failure for denying Jesus three times. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Third time, do you love me? Three denials of Peter, three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter denied Jesus in public, so Jesus reinstates him in public. Jesus' three questions, do you love me, by this second charcoal fire, give Peter the chance to repent of his threefold denial at the first charcoal fire. And it's more than Jesus just forgiving Peter. Jesus is graciously reinstating Peter. He's taking him off the sidelines and saying to Peter, Come on, Peter, get back in the game. What is Peter reinstated to do? Jesus calls him to feed my lambs and tend my sheep. The feeding and the tending that Jesus calls Peter to do is the language of pastoral ministry. Teaching the Bible, leading the flock, caring for the strays and the wounded in the church. That's what Jesus is calling Peter to do. So what is Peter, so Peter's supposed to feed the sheep, but what is Peter supposed to feed Jesus' sheep with? Where do you get this food? Well, if you remember in John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus gave himself as the living bread that we might have life. And then Jesus explains what he means in John 6, 63, when he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's not encouraging cannibalism. I'm the living bread. He's saying, I am the living bread in the sense that my words are the ones that give spirit, are, are the ones that give life. So when Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, what he means is feed them with my word. Feed them with my word that reveals who I am as the living bread. Give them my word because it's the only word in this universe that gives life. Do you see how this explains the miracle in verses 1 through 14? The disciples went fishing and they came back with what? Nothing. Empty handed, zero fish. Until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, they brought in 150 fish, and Jesus set the table for them and provided breakfast for them. They had nothing. Jesus provides everything. So when Jesus calls Peter to feed his sheep, the point is is that by themselves, Peter and the apostles had no message, no food in and of themselves that could give life to a dying world. There's nothing special about the apostles in and of themselves. 
but because Jesus commissioned them and gave them his word, after being forgiven and restored by the risen Christ, Peter and John and the other apostles now begin to understand the life-giving message of Jesus that they have to give to a dying world. Not only have they heard it, they've experienced it. The word for tend, tend the sheep, is another word for shepherd, shepherding, or pastoral ministry. So Jesus' command to Peter to feed the lambs and tend or shepherd my sheep, again, it has to do with pastoral care. What's, what's cool is that when you read Peter's epistle, his letter, we realize that Peter actually took up this charge because in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder, a fellow pastor. In the New Testament, elders and pastors are synonymous. It's the same word, interchangeable words at least. So as we look at this section of John 21, I want to apply verses 15 through 17 to our elders at First Baptist. I wanna speak specifically to the elders of this church. But church, if you're not an elder, if you're a member of this church, you're not an elder, it's still important for you to listen because you need to know the job description of an elder. You need to know the job description of a pastor because it's your job, congregation, to appoint elders, to pray for elders, to submit to elders, and to hold the elders of this church accountable to the standards of God's word. So let me make five observations from this text about pastoral ministry. Five observations. Number one, the sheep belong to Jesus. Jesus tells Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. They're not Peter's sheep. What did the flock cost Jesus? Acts 20, 28 says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The flock, the church, the sheep belong to Jesus because Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Brother elders, listen, never forget that this church is not your church or mine. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. This church belongs to the chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ. So knowing that we as elders, as pastors of this church, will give an account to Jesus, we must follow his lead and only pastor and teach as Jesus instructs us to in the words of the Bible. Elders, you must toil, you must labor, you must work hard, yes, but you must rely on all his energy that he powerfully works within you. Colossians 1.29, that's why we pray. That's why I want you all to come to our prayer meeting this Wednesday. Number two, so number one is a sheep belong, the sheep belong to Jesus. Number two, a shepherd must be humble. Shepherd must be humble. Listen, Peter was gloriously reinstated after his, after his uh, awful failure. But Peter was not the only sinner. Every elder, every pastor needs the mercy and grace of Christ. Every pastor, every elder can say, yeah, I was like Peter. I was a mess, I was dead in my sin, and by the mercy of God, he forgave me and restored me. So pastors, remember that you have been forgiven much. Don't ever forget that. Let the, let the, let the remembrance that you have been forgiven much 
that you were once dead in your sins, temper the way that you lead and care for the flock here at First Baptist. Number three, a shepherd must feed the sheep. A shepherd must feed the sheep. This is what Jesus told Peter to do. And because a pastor is called to then proclaim the gospel accounts of the apostles, we build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what we're called to do as too as pastors. Now listen, there are lots of things that a pastor could stand at this pulpit and talk to you about. We could tell you jokes that make you laugh. We could talk to you about current events and politics and social trends that suit your desires and the group that you belong to. Tickle your ears. The pastor behind this pulpit could talk to you about their own experiences to warm your heart. And it's not that we never talk about those things, but we must preach the word. To feed the sheep, we must feed the sheep with the only word that gives life, and that is the words of God. Only God's word gives life. Only God's word unites, transforms, and feeds. So brother elders, preach, teach God's word. Number four, a shepherd leads with God's word. We don't, we don't just feed with God's word. A shepherd must lead with God's word. Brother elders, in your sermon, in your Sunday school class, in your small group, in your one-on-one counseling with another member in this church, remember that the job of an elder is to be the microphone to God's word. This church does not need our opinions. They need the words of God. And we lead with God's word. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. When God's words are proclaimed, Jesus said in John 27, 10, 27, what happens? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The true sheep will hear the voice of the true shepherd, Jesus, when you preach God's word and they will follow. That's how we lead. Number five, and this is kind of the foundation of it all. A shepherd must love Jesus. Three times, Jesus asked Peter painfully, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I think Peter is asked that question because the motivation for feeding the sheep and shepherding the sheep isn't the praise of man. We shouldn't be motivated by money or the praise of man. We should be motivated as an elder by the love of God. We elder, we tend the sheep, we feed the sheep because we love Jesus. So brother elders, cultivate your love for God. Do not neglect it. There's lots of stuff we gotta do. There's lots of busyness, there's work to be done. But as Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it for the wellsprings of life. Tend to your love for God. Lead, teach, serve from a heart that loves Jesus and wants others to share the joy and love for Jesus that you know. Church, let me ask you to pray for us. Pray for the elders of this church to love Jesus. Pray for the elders of the church to love and lead this flock with God's word. Pray for the elders of this church to grow in humility as Jesus calls us to. Friends, how can we trust the gospel record of apostles who blew it? We can trust the gospel record recorded by the apostles not because they were perfect, but because Jesus gave them his word and Jesus commissioned the apostles to feed his sheep. 
to reject the gospel record of God's word as laid out by the apostles is to reject Jesus because Jesus gave him them his word and commissioned them to give us the word. That's how the the sheep are fed both 2,000 years ago and today at this church. Now, Peter was no doubt grateful to be forgiven and restored by Jesus, but where would this commissioning, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, where would this lead, Peter? Well, look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus, whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that this is going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus, Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Notice in verse 18, Jesus mentions that when Peter was young, what could he do? He could walk wherever he wanted. I want to go here, I go here. I want to go there, I go there. I can do whatever I want. And like Peter, when we are in control, or what feels like when we're in control, when we can go where we want, it's then that we assume, now I'm really free. Because I can go where I want. But what feels like freedom is actually bondage. Jesus in John 8, 34 through 36, taught us that true freedom isn't being free to do what I want when I want. Jesus defines true freedom, Christian freedom, as being set free to do God's will. That's true freedom. So when Peter adopted the world's idea of freedom, when he put himself first and lived for his glory, what do we see Peter doing in the Gospel of John? He gets in front of Jesus and tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He whips out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. And he denies Jesus three times. That's not freedom, friends. That's bondage. That's being in shackles. So at the end of John's gospel, John actually opens up and gives us a glimpse into this battle that is going on in Peter's heart for us. So after Peter gets the difficult news from Jesus about how he's going to die, 
when he talks about stretching out his arms, that's, that's talking about his death. Going to where you don't want to go, that's talking about his death. He gets this difficult news about his coming death from Jesus, and then he's walking with Jesus. And he turns around and he sees John following them. <laughs> and he goes, Jesus, what about him? Peter falls into the comparison trap, a trap that we often fall into ourselves. If I have to suffer, what about John? If my life is going to be cut short, well, is John's life going to be cut short too? What about, what about John? And Jesus' answer to Peter is simple. Peter, it's none of your business. It's above your pay grade. It's not for you to know. Verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So what should Peter concern himself with? You follow me. Don't worry about John. You follow me. Friends, the world that we live in operates with a performance-based value system. It says that your value, your identity as a human is based upon how well you perform. If you watch a football game this afternoon, how do you know who's the better team? Who performed better? Who had the most points? And the only way you know which is a better team by how you compare one team to the other. And that's what happens in this world. We are born into this world ever since Adam and Eve. We are born into this world hardwired to compare to look over our, our shoulders at other people and compare ourselves with them. How do I measure up? Where do I stand? And comparison is the fuel, it's the food that feeds the sin of envy in our hearts. What is envy? Envy is the resentment that we feel when other people have what we want. Envy creates sorrow when others have what we do not. Peter compares himself with John. What about John? Can you see yourself in Peter? I hate to confess this to you, church, but I see myself in Peter. I am tempted to envy the giftedness of other people, the way that they preach, the way that they lead, the way that they give godly counsel. Half the time when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm thinking, I can think of 20 people that preach a sermon a thousand times better than me. And I look at myself in light of that other person that I'm comparing myself to, and, and they, they make it look so easy. They're so fruitful. And then you go online or you look around, it's not very hard, and there are countless books and countless conferences and countless podcasts and countless social media posts that are sharing what a church should look like, what your ministry should be, how to improve your ministry, how to be better, 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 better. And, and they're meant to be encouraging, but what happens is all of those books and conferences and podcasts and social media posts are quietly whispering, here's how you're failing, Zach. 
here's how you're inadequate, here's how you stink, here's how you're not measuring up. Comparison can leave me in the pits of despair. Why even try? Envy can lead to burnout. I gotta gotta try harder, I gotta just do more. Comparing myself with others can produce a roller coaster of emotions. Pride and happiness when it goes well, hopelessness and self-pity when my efforts flop. Envy leaves us miserable. Proverbs 14.30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. What an image. When you have envy in your heart, your bones are like rotten. Where does envy show up in your life? Think about it. Where does envy show up in your life? Where do you find yourself comparing yourself with others? Do you see resentment? Sorrow? Discouragement in your heart? When you see others succeed? When you see their popularity? When you see how good looking they are? When you see their comfortable life and life just kind of goes easy for them. When you see the nice clothes that they wear and then you look at your closet. When you see how intelligent they are. When you see their athletic ability. When you see how obedient their kids are. When you see how successful they are in their career. Friends, do you feel hopeless or discouraged right now in the chair you're sitting in because of comparison? Envy makes the bones rot. If you see it in your heart and you want out, do you want out? What's the way out? Peter's a good example for us. Two times, Peter is called by Jesus, follow me, follow me. And, and what he's saying to Peter is, I want you to follow me. I, I died and then I rose again. And I'm calling you, Peter, to trust me, to die with me that you might rise with me to truly live. But when Jesus calls you to die, those are hard words to swallow, right? But what's great about John's account is that we know that Peter learned to trust Jesus. We know that Peter learned to follow Jesus. Because after Peter told Jesus in verse 18, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, John explains what he means in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. By the time that John wrote this gospel account, Peter had already died a martyr's death. John knew that when he wrote this. And so even the historical records show that Peter was crucified in Rome about 30 years after Jesus told him this. He was crucified in Rome and we're told that Peter requested, if you're going to crucify me, at least do it upside down. And that's how Peter died. Peter went from a willingness to die for his own glory 
swinging the sword, trying to protect Jesus who didn't need his protection. He went from being willing to die for his own glory to trusting Jesus with his entire life and dying to glorify God. What happened? How did Peter get there? How did Jesus break the chains of Peter's self-centeredness and sin? How was Peter set free from envy and comparison? It's very simple. He trusted Jesus as the one in control and as the one who provides. If, if God in Christ could command 153 fish into his net, if, 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 if Jesus could do that in his sovereign power, then Peter knew that Jesus could take care of him and his other problems, no matter how distressing they might be. And if Jesus could, could feed them breakfast in their need after Peter denied him three times, then he could trust Jesus to provide his other needs too. Friends, again, remember what Psalm 23 verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If God is your shepherd, he'll provide what you need when you need it. Amen? All right, now we may say amen to that, but when you leave here, or even now, deep down in your heart, you might say, but yeah, but how do I know? Because when the, when the rubber meets the road and, and you've got to step out in faith and, and you're not sure if God's going to come through, that's nerve-wracking. How do I know that God's going to take care of me? How do I know that he's going to, I know he's in control, but can I, how can I trust him? How do I know that he's going to provide for me when I need it? Because, as Peter experienced, when you needed help the most and yet deserved it the least, Jesus came. He died on the cross in your place, in our place, for our sin, and he rose again for our salvation. That's how you can know. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 31, 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do I know that God is for me? Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Friends, if, if God did not spare his own beloved son for your salvation and mine, then tomorrow you can trust that whatever you need, he will provide. That's, whatever you need tomorrow is nothing compared to the cost of his own son. He's showing us his heart at Calvary. So you may be worried about tomorrow. You may feel inadequate. You may feel discouraged. You may feel not cut out for what God has called you to do. That's okay. We're not made to be self-reliant. We are made to be God-reliant. And trusting Jesus is our path to freedom. When we come to Christ and say, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I don't need to, because you're my shepherd, that's freedom. I don't have what they have, but I don't need to, because you're my shepherd. That's true freedom. Peter got there, and we can get there. Friends, if envy and comparison has you in chains, gracious, Jesus graciously confronts our wondering, envious eyes this morning by saying to us, don't look at them. What is that to you? You follow me. Trust me. 
And he says that to set us free. Don't worry about others. Don't compare yourself to them. God assigned you, Christian. He assigned you specific gifts. He assigned you specific weaknesses. His path for you is tailor-made. He didn't give you that person's spouse. He gave you your spouse. He didn't give you that person's kids. He gave you your kids. He didn't give you that person's job, that person's marriage, that person's church, that person's home, that person's bank account. He gave you your job, your marriage, your singleness, your church, your home, your bank account. And Jesus promises to be with you in what he gives you. And he promises to shepherd you and to provide for you every step of the way. The question that he's asking us this morning is the question that he asked Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, then follow me. Can you do that, church? Friends, John's testimony is true. He calls us, he calls everyone, Christian or not, to turn from their sin and trust in him because his testimony is true. John wrote the gospel that we read, 21 chapters to show us that Jesus is the Christ. 21 chapters to show us that Jesus is the son of God, that we might believe in him, trust in him, and in trusting in him, have life in his name. So friends, decide right now, decide today to trust in Jesus because no one whose hope is on him will ever be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who came as God in the flesh to reveal God to us. We thank you for, for preserving a faithful and true and trustworthy, reliable account in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word that we might believe to to awaken faith, to create faith, to strengthen faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. So Lord, we pray, we pray, Father, that you would help us to believe. We're, we're like the man in, in, who said, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Help our unbelief, God. Don't let us leave this place without resting in you. Help us to help each other to rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.